Okay, so to begin, I'm going to read Revelation chapter 2, if you have your Bible, beginning at verse 18, to eight, uh, the letter to the church at Thyatira. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, so if anybody knows a better way to say it, let me know. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give you, I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a the rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To premise this entire discourse things that I want us to consider. Uh, first of all, what are the correlations? Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, But he answered and said, it, and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. What is Christ saying here? Christ says, Every word in this word is like bread. It's our sustenance. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, let me say this again, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There is a practical application for everything that we read in the word. And very often, the vast majority of the time, I would dare to say an immediate practical application. The word calls us to repent. And also, I often quote Spurgeon, I often quote him incorrectly, but I'm going to fix what I've often quoted. This is what he actually said in regards to discernment. He said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. That's the actual quote. How do these things apply to us personally? How do these things apply to our church? And how do these things apply to the universal church, to all believers? Okay. So the question, when we see the word discernment, what is it that we are to be discerning? We get very comfortable because we know things about the word. We know doctrine. We know theology. That's one of the great things I love about our church is we teach sound doctrine, and we know that. 
That's not the question. The question is, do we know how to discern the difference between what is right and what is almost right? False doctrine was the first doctrine that, introduced, that Satan introduced in the garden. He does it first by getting you to question what is actually true, and then he proposes something that sounds almost true. False doctrine is very rarely, sometimes it is, but very rarely is it an outright and obvious lie. Well, if I have enough faith, I could fly. Nobody believes that. Well, I mean, may, there may be some people that do in, in this day and age, but as an example. Okay. So the church of Thyatira and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Again, we don't know if this is an actual angel, but we know that the word used for angel is the word messenger. So there was a messenger that went to the church. The word angel itself means messenger. Thyatira was the smallest and least important of the seven cities addressed in Revelation 2 and chapter 3, or chapters 2 and 3. In history, we have no record of the Christians of Thyatira that they suffered any kind of significant political or religious persecution. It's kind of a mild-mannered city. Not much going on, okay? Uh, the elder Pliny, remember there's Pliny the elder, Pliny the younger, dismissed Thyatira with an almost contemptuous phrase. He said Thyatira and other unimportant cities. So it's not exactly regarded as a great central anything. It's just kind of a place. However, this city was a center of business and trade. It had many active trade guilds, each having their own patron deity from the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods. Remember, as I've said before, is when, a Roman, when the Roman Empire conquered a civilization, they often adopted their beliefs and kind of melted them into their own. Roman gods were originally Greek gods. Their names were just changed. In Acts 16, verses 14 to 15, we see mentions of Lydia of Thyatira, who was a seller of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was famous for the manufacture of purple dye. Now, if you notice in, in a lot of church history, the color purple is a sign of royalty. Numerous references are found in secular literature of the period to the, uh, period to the trade guilds which manufactured that cloth. So they were known for manufacturing cloth and dyes and things like that. Um, Jesus describes himself in part two. Jesus describes himself to the church in Thyatira. Now, let's, let's focus a little bit on what, how he describes himself. He says, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. This is quite a metaphor because we know that Jesus' feet aren't literally bronze, but they look like that. These things say the Son of God. Now, Jesus first described himself with a title that emphasized his deity. In Jewish thought, to be the son of a thing meant you had the nature of that thing. The sons of the sorceress spoken of in, in Isaiah chapter 57 had the nature of the sorceress. The sons of thunder, spoken of in Mark, had a nature like thunder. The Son of God has the divine nature, the nature of God, who has eyes like flame of fire. Not exactly the Christ that we picture when we think about the lamb that was led to the slaughter. I heard one preacher say that we, we really should have our eye, one eye on the Christ that we see in the Gospels and then one eye of the Christ that we see in Revelation. Jesus chose this description of himself from the presentation in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14 to emphasize the idea that his eyes, that his eyes looked 
with penetrating judgment. His feet like fine brass. Now, Jesus chose this description of himself in Revelation 1.15 to emphasize his purity because brass is purified and highly refined in a fire. It also emphasized his steadfastness because brass was the strongest known metal in the ancient world. So a feat like fine brass would be strong and unmovable and having gone through the trials of fire. Now what Jesus knows about the Christians in Thyatira. Remember, we've covered some of the churches here along the coastal region of the, of the Mediterranean and the Aegean Sea. Thyatira is a little more inland. And Thyatira was also on the route of Paul's third journey. Okay, so we know that Paul visited the church in Thyatira. What Jesus, uh, part three, what Jesus knows about the Christians in Thyatira, he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So when he says, I know your works, Thyatira was a least significant city among the seven cities Jesus addressed, yet they were not hidden to Jesus. Like each one of the churches, Jesus said to the church at Thyatira, I know your works. That is the first thing, that is the common denominator in all the letters to the churches, is he identifies, he says, I know what you're doing. But he also says, I know what you're thinking and what you actually believe. Love, service, faith, and your patience. In many ways, this church was a model church. They had four great essential qualities. They had love both for the Lord and for one another. They knew service and had faith and patience worth mentioning. Now, as for your works, the last one, the last are more than the first. This was another compliment to the church at Thyatira. Not only did they have these works, but they had them in increasing measure. They were growing in love. They were growing in service. They were growing in faith and they were growing in patience. Now, what Jesus gets to in part four is what he has against the church. There was only one church of the seven churches that Christ didn't have something against. Remember, and that was the church at, anybody? Okay, we'll come back to that. <laughs> Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel. Now, this is where it starts to get really interesting. Pretty harsh. That woman Jezebel. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, you remember, um, you remember the story about Jezebel found in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, who calls herself a prophetess. So it is believed. Now, there, there's two schools of thought. Both of them, really what it comes down to is what is being taught. But some believe that Jezebel spoken of here was an actual prophetess, an actual woman that taught in the church. Others believe that it was just the doctrine that was being adopted by the people of the church. Either way, the result is essentially the same. It's what's being taught and believed. Um, herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality. It almost always comes back to sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not. This is why I believe Jezebel was an actual person, an actual lady that taught in the church. Nevertheless, despite all the good Jesus saw in the church at Thyatira, there were significant problems. The problems were big enough for Jesus to say, nevertheless. He recognizes the things that they're doing right, but then he goes on to say, nevertheless. 
which meant, despite all the good, I have something against you. Think about this now. We are saved by grace. Indeed, that is true. Within grace, within the grace that God gives us, he has commands for us. And for us to not follow those commands, for, those, for, for us to not follow the sound teaching of Christ, it's a pretty serious error. Because you allowed that woman Jezebel, the center of the corruption at the church of Thyatira was a woman Jesus called Jezebel. This may not have been her literal name, but the title that clearly represented a self-styled prophetess within the church after the pattern of Jezebel of the Old Testament, which is found in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. The name Jezebel has a powerful association, and to me it's kind of obvious. I mean, the very first letter of her first name has a hook in it. No? Okay. <laughs> the name Jezebel has a powerful association. If we call someone a Judas or a Hitler, it means something strong. That's a pretty, that's a pretty serious insult. To, to call someone a Jezebel is, is not a light thing here. It's also a strong thing to call this woman Jezebel. She was one of the evilest characters in the Old Testament who attempted to combine the worship of Israel with the worship of the idol Baal, B-A-A-L. Jezebel herself had a very significant record of evil. Now, some ancient Greek manuscripts state that the phrase that the woman Jezebel, as your woman, that, that the word Jezebel means as your woman or your wife, okay? Not your wife, but it was you were joined to this person. Based on this, uh, some think that Jezebel was the pastor's wife or that Jesus meant Jezebel was the pastor's woman in a symbolic sense. Okay, that's what I've, I've found in some of the research I did. Again, I don't think it was an actual, I mean, I do think it was an actual person, but I don't know that it was actually a pastor's wife or an elder's wife. It could have been because she was teaching. Okay, but the point is what she was teaching. That's the concern. Not so much who she was or that she was a real person. It was that what was being taught. Who calls herself a prophet, a prophetess. This Jezebel at the church of Thyatira wasn't really a prophetess. She only claimed to be one. Okay? She wasn't actually a prophet. She claimed to be one. Does this sound familiar? It probably should. Yet it seems that the Christians there received her as a prophetess, and that is why Jesus gave them this warning. Jesus said this would happen in Matthew 24, verse 11. So when we go back to the Gospels, what did he say? Remember, he said that many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Those words were first spoken when the view, with the view of the end times. And also, when you look at the translation of many false Christs will arise, if you look at the Greek translation, it actually means many false ideas about Christ will arise. That's what Christ was actually saying. He's not saying necessarily that there's going to be people that claim to be me, which we know does happen. History has taught us that, that people do actually claim to be Christ. I believe David Koresh from the Waco incident actually claimed to be, claimed to be a type of Christ. But what Christ is actually saying is that there will be ideas about me that are false, and people are going to follow them. This is where your little discernment bell should be ringing, okay? Those words were first spoken with the view of the end times, but there have always been those who call themselves prophets in the church and are not. How do you know what a false prophet is? It's actually really simple. If they predict something that doesn't come true, they're a false prophet. If they say something that doesn't line with the word, 
or false prophet. It's actually very simple. To teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Here, Jesus described the specific sin of this woman Jezebel. Mainly, she was an immoral and ungodly influence on others and led others into sin. Now, here's why I think the important thing here is not to focus on her being an actual person, although I think that does have a great deal of significance. It's what was being taught. Now, often in the church, especially Reformed churches, you don't see a lot of false things being taught. I mean, that's, that's just not what we do. That's not the question. The question is, what are you being taught outside of the church that you have accepted as okay? That's the question. The things we watch, the things we listen to, the things we indoctrinate ourselves with on a 24-7 basis, pretty much, are they actually true? Or are they almost true? Do they tickle our ears or do they call us to repent? Do they edify us or do they just educate us? There is a difference. Because of the strong trade guilds in Thyatira, the sexual immorality and the eating of things sacrificed to idols, to idols was probably connected with the mandatory social occasions of the guilds. Perhaps a Christian was invited to, into the monthly meeting of the Goldsmith Guild, and the meeting was held at the Temple of Apollo. Jezebel would allow or encourage that man to go, perhaps using a prophetic word, and when the man went, he fell into immorality and idolatry. In other words, what she's teaching is to become part of the world, to go along with the world, to do the things that the world does. That is one of the significant errors of false teaching. It teaches you to go along. To draw the guilds and their meetings was to draw, excuse me, the draw to the guilds and their meetings was powerful. No merchant or trader could hope to prosper or make any money unless he was a member of the trade guilds. It was a big deal in this ancient culture. If you had a business, it would be like being part of the chamber of commerce, for lack of a better way to put it. Nonetheless, Christians were expected to stand in the face of this kind of pressure. One ancient Christian named Tertullian, may sound familiar to you, wrote about Christians who made their living in trades connected to pagan idolatry. A painter might find work in pagan temples, or a sculptor might be hired to make a statue of a pagan god. They would justify this by saying, this is my living, and I must live. To which Tertullian replied in Latin, bevere ergo abes, which means, must you live? My servants, this shows how terrible Jezebel's sin was. We're talking about some serious stuff here. We often think of the book of Revelation in regards to eschatology, the knowledge of things that are going to happen eventually, or maybe to some degree have happened. We very seldom consider the reality of revelations as a practical application of our daily lives. That's what this book has challenged me the most, or how it has, rather. My servants, uh, she corrupted the servants of Jesus, and they belonged to him. She was corrupting, the teaching was corrupting those that actually belonged to Christ. Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. That is a very serious warning. Later in this letter, Jesus would also reveal a link to the work of Jezebel and false doctrine. This doctrine, the depths of Satan... Very serious phraseology here. As they say in Revelation 2.24, it seems that this Jezebel led others 
in the church at Thyatira to discover the depths of Satan. You have to ask yourself what that actually means. How does that translate? We know the word translates to our lives immediately. How does it translate to my life? What does that actually look like? It's an important question. I don't think you could ask too much. In the days of the New Testament, many non-Christian religions, such as the Ophites and the various Gnostic groups, said they knew the deep things of Satan. The ancient Christian writer Tertullian said, if you asked a Gnostic about their cosmic mysteries, they furled their brow and said, it is deep. It may be deep, but deep into a dangerous pit. How could Christians ever fall for the depths of Satan? Well, perhaps the deceptive reasoning went this way. To effectively confront Satan, you must enter his strongholds and learn his depths in order to conquer him. People use similar reasoning in misguided spiritual warfare today. In order to understand what's going on in my kid's life, maybe I need to get on TikTok. I'm not here to preach against TikTok. But the reality is, if you've seen some of the stuff that comes out of there, it's pretty horrendous. Social media, it's, it's getting pretty bad. I mean, let's, let's just be honest here, okay? It's, it's getting pretty bad. And I gave her time to repent. She did not repent. Again, why I think it's an actual person. Jesus' greatest accusation was that this Jezebel did not repent. Now, but think about what he's saying here. She apparently rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in her heart, calling her to repentance. Now, in these words, we see both mercy and judgment. I love how the Puritan said it. In God's works, we often see judgment mixed with mercy. Time to repent shows mercy. God gives us time to repent. We should deal with others the same way. Let me say that again. God gives us time to repent. We should deal with others the same way. And she did not repent speaks to the judgment of God. God gives us time to repent, but it is not an unlimited time. There is a time when God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, as spoken of in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. This means that when God gives us time to repent, we should take it very seriously. If that conviction falls upon you to repent of your sin, harden not your heart. Because you allow, the phrase, because you allow, this shows the sin of the church of Thyatira on the outside. They were a model church, showing works, love, service, faith, and patience. Yet there was significant corruption inside the church. The sin of the church was that they allowed this corruption. It was not, they were not guarding their heart. Remember the, the, the passage, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the wellspring of life. Very old instructional saying that obviously wasn't taken very seriously. It wasn't necessarily a large group following Jezebel. A little eleven affects a whole lump of dough, and a few in immorality and idolatry will corrupt the whole church, especially if they influence others the way that this Jezebel, this person did. Now, what Jesus wants this church to do, so he says, I know, first he introduced himself, says, this is who I am, you better take it seriously. And then he says, I see what you're doing, I know your works, I know what you're about, but this is what I have against you. Makes it very clear. Now he says, this is what I want you to do about it. Very simple process, not complicated. We often complicate things that really aren't complicated. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. You can be sure 
Uh, excuse me, you can be assured that if you continue to go the path that you're going, it ain't going to be easy. God disciplines those he loves, and he scourges every son he receives. So if you belong to the Lord, you're just, it's just not going to be easy. Let me tell you how I know that. I will kill her children with death. That's pretty serious stuff. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. There is a reward for steadfastness and faithfulness, but hold fast what you have till I come. Now, let's talk about, I will cast, and by the way, I was going to show this right here. That's a gymnasium in ancient Greece. They actually had gymnasiums. Here's the really weird part. No women were welcome, which that's not necessarily weird. It's that they often worked out completely nude. Interesting. Is it any wonder that sexual immorality was rampant? It was just kind of a seared conscience kind of thing, I feel like. The reference to adultery is important. It speaks both of sexual adultery and spiritual adultery. When we look at the word, when we look at the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, if you look at the actual translation into ancient Hebrew, it doesn't necessarily only mean sexual adultery. It's the adulteration of truth, which also encompasses sexual immorality. It's to lie. Now, there is another commandment to not lie specifically, but to adulterate is to twist the truth or to step out even slightly of the truth. For this reason, the figure of a sickbed is fitting. They were guilty of adultery, both sexual and spiritual. It is as if Jesus said, you love an unclean bed. Here, I'll give you one and cast you into a sickbed. Have you ever heard the story or if you had like a dad like I did, the very first time I was caught chewing tobacco, my dad made me chew the whole bag. Sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. Often when we go willfully into sin, the Lord will let us do just that. Ask me how I know this. For this reason, oh, sorry. What is the sickbed? It could simply be an image of affliction, or it could be a literal sickness that Jesus allowed in the lives of Jezebel and her followers as a chastisement. God will often chastise you with your own sin. That's what's being taught here. We know from passages of Scripture, such as 1 Corinthians 11.30, that God can use sickness as a way to chastise his people. Some of you are sick. Some of you now sleep. Again, very serious stuff. The ancient Greek word, now just because you're sick doesn't mean you're being chastised by God, but you should know it if you are. That's the difference. The ancient Greek word used here for bed is also the word for a banqueting couch. And if that meaning is taken literally, is I will strike her down as she sits in a forbidden feast. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit due to time. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm still having a challenge fitting it all in. Actually, I'm, I'm not going to skip. I'm just going to go over it kind of rapidly. Unless they repent of the deeds, Jesus revealed the purpose for this chastening. Chast chastening. <laughs> First, it was to draw them to repent of their deeds. The word repent is used so many times in the book of Revelation. Repent, repent, repent. It is the common denominator with everything that he tells people to do in those letters. Minds and hearts is literally... So in, in, in Jewish tradition, hearts and minds was actually 
it was minds and kidneys. <laughs> it's what you thought and it's what you felt. I know your every thought and your every feeling. I will kill her children with death. All men die, but are not, not all are killed with death. It's a pretty serious thing here. Hold fast till... A whole fast what you have till I come. There are many faithful, uncompromising Christians in Thyatira. Um, to them, Jesus simply said, hold fast. They must not stop doing what is good. Let me say it again. They must not stop doing what is good. They must not become distracted or discouraged from what Jesus wants them to do. Jesus also told them how long to hold fast until I come. Let me say that again. He told them how long to hold on. He says, until I come. We are to hang in there and stand strong for Jesus until he comes. It is only then that the battle will be over. But this life is but a vapor. James chapter 4. It's going by pretty fast. Yesterday I was 20. Tomorrow I'm going to be 48. Promise of reward. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give the power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Who is the morning star? He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. End when there is the immoral and idolatrous influence of a Jezebel. Christians can overcome and keep Jesus' works until the end. We must not be overcome or overly discouraged at immorality and idolatry around us, even among Christians. Let me say that again. We must not become overly discouraged at immorality and idolatry, even amongst professing Christians. God's work will still go through for his overcomers. To him I will give the power of the nations. Jesus promised that his people will reign with him. Jesus promised that his people will reign with him. Here, there's a special promise to those who overcome uh, the threat of immorality and idolatry. To them, Jesus offered a share in his kingdom. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Basically, what's happening here is Jesus is talking to the faithful within the church. He's, he's reminding us, like, listen, you're with me on this. You're on the winning team. Hold fast. Hold fast to what is true. Repent of what is wrong. And for the love of Pete, do not fall for false teaching. And a general exhortation, oh, by the way, sorry, I skipped that part. I will give them the morning star. Jesus offered a reward, a reward greater than the kingdom. He offered them the reward of himself. Jesus is the morning star he speaks of. A general exhortation to all, all whom will hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. Common denominator in every single letter. If you have an ear, hear. This letter that applies to this letter applies to everyone. It applies to those who are like Jezebel, who lead others into sin. It applies to those who follow the teaching of Jezebel and follow others into sin. This is a serious letter. Therefore, we should take it seriously. Take it seriously for yourself, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and for the church universal. It applies to those who permit a Jezebel to work in, in her wickedness, and it applies to the faithful who hold fast. How does this apply to you? That's the question. How does this apply to you? That's the whole reason we go through anything in Scripture, is to understand how does it apply to us? How does it apply to those I care about? That's pretty much it. I was going to try to cover the letter to Sardis. I don't know what I was thinking, but here we are. Uh, any questions? Thanks, Thank you. You're welcome.